welcome to the Decking Awesome podcast. My name is Kira, and I'm joined today by Owen and Brian. Hello. Hi. Today we are going to talk about balancing a board game. We're going to discuss where the worlds of fun and balance collide, what our process is, and we discuss how to find the balance in your game. So let's kick off by asking, why balance a board game? Uh, Well, once a board game is released, it's pretty much impossible to make any changes. Uh, So as a developer, you need to ensure that players can keep replaying your game, have lots of fun, and... I like the idea of finding out where everyone who bought your game lives and going around and giving them an updated (laughs) rule book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty much set in stone once it's actually been manufactured by the the company. But yeah, I think uh, I'd have to agree. You, You really want replayability in your game. That's probably the most important thing that's that's going to stand to your game. So if it's really unbalanced, it does deter people from playing it over and over again. Yeah, you want to you want to have a nice balance to it. So no matter what kind of route or strategy or path or plan you take, that, you know, you always you're always in with a good chance of winning that going one route isn't definitely going to win or going another route isn't definitely going to fail that everything at least has some kind of chance. And balance is is hard to perceive as well. Uh, For new players, first time playing the game, they could face balancing problems that are different than someone who's mastering the game, who's played lots and lots of times. So there's different kind of approaches when it comes to balancing a game. So that leads us on to the big question. How do you balance a board game? Maths, 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 (laughs) maths, maths. (laughs) Yeah, maths maths and modeling, I suppose, is, is... The way to do it, it's not the most exciting part of designing a board game, but you want to make sure that nothing is wildly too powerful. At the start, you know, you can assign your resources values and do counting on how many resources are going to be available where to make sure that at least starting off from the the early prototypes, you know, you have the right amount of pieces where you need them, that nothing is, is wildly too powerful. Yeah, and you can also model uh, how these different kind of game elements interact with each other and kind of uh, see how different parts of your game will get combined and how what their effect is. So kind of just having even the mental model uh, as you play the game over and over again uh, is a great way of figuring out where this balance is coming from. If you know there's a common winning strategy after doing lots of playtesting, you can see which parts need to be tinkered with. And don't feel too overwhelmed, I think, is a, is one that I find important because I can definitely feel overwhelmed by the math and modeling element of it. Sometimes it's just simply about assigning a value to something. Just pick something in your game and have that be the value of one. Work out from there. So whether that be the simplest resource you have on the board and give that the value of one or that the health that one of the creatures being attacked has Set, set some sort of boundary, but just pick an arbitrary number to start with and work your way out if you if maths and modeling isn't maybe your strongest point. If maths and modeling is your strongest point, up the challenge for yourself, you know, set your base unit as pi and extrapolate from that. One is easier, but, you know, why not? <laughs> so maths and modeling isn't everything there is in balancing a board game. What are things can be used to help you balance? Yeah, sometimes uh, you can get kind of caught up in maths and modeling and, and worrying too much about all the numbers in your game and and uh, picking them out and trying to figure things out that way. A good way of looking at it is uh, paths as well throughout your game. Uh, different players uh, will have different approaches to the games just based on their own personalities and their approach to board games. And if you can kind of di- differentiate your paths and look at how each one on its own reacts to the game and how 
players advanced throughout your game, that can also be a good way of just seeing are these paths that the players can choose balanced. Sometimes it's it's just about flying by the seat of your pants as well. Like you're you're looking at people play test your game and you're kind of getting a feel for how they're playing it, what bits they're enjoying, what bits they aren't. And, you know, maybe you're just making changes on the fly. Maybe you're just going, well, let's make that resource worth a bit more and see are more people inclined towards us. You know, if people like certain routes, but they're difficult to get at, maybe you can make them more accessible or you can increase the points value for it. It doesn't always have to be all maths. You can sometimes just adjust as you go. Sometimes it'll be wild adjustments that make it way too powerful and then you'll end up adjusting back to balance it all out and eventually you'll get down to just small tweaks until you until you find everything seems to work well for you. And that's why you, you can't skip playtesting. Like for all that you can come up with the perfect uh, model for your game and be happy that each path is balanced. When you playtest a game, there's some things that people like playing. Maybe it's in dice summers and people just like getting the dinosaurs and you, you have to account for those sorts of things in how you're designing the balance of your game. People want to feel like they're achieving something no matter which path they take. Maybe they really enjoy gathering resources and that's how they like to win the game. They want to feel that there's a way that they can get through the game and they're not going to have absolutely no hope at all of winning through that path. Yeah, playtesting is definitely the most concrete way of understanding the balance in your game. Uh, we actually have another podcast on efficient playtesting, so definitely check that one out. Yeah, I mean, I, if, if there's one point to take away from how to balance the game, it's playtest, 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 because no matter... That's too much playtesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one less playtest. <laughs> no matter how many times you play through a game, you think you'll have everything figured out, all the problems solved, everything is balanced perfectly, someone will come along and break your game in a new and creative way, and they'll end up with 100 more points than anyone else, and you're just going... How? How did you even do that? The scoreboard only goes up to 20. <laughs> yeah, we have we have two board games ourselves, actually, at the moment. And they're pretty much in the balancing stage at this moment. Lots of playtesting, lots of looking at it from our own point of view, trying to model it. And so, yeah, it can be a, just a very iterative process, but you're better off putting this time in now because it pays off so much at the end. Yeah. Um, and you want to make sure that people aren't just getting left behind when you're when you're playing different routes, because sometimes if someone feels like they absolutely can't win a game, they're just going to stop caring about it or they're going to start interfering with other players or just deliberately going out of their way to to block them and make sure they're not enjoying it as much. I know there's certain players that I won't mention own that <laughs> always favor a kind of conflict-based <laughs> <laughs> approach to games. It was on. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to get my personality into a game, you know? Um, so, yeah, looking at how those paths interact as well can be kind of good, especially for players who like the conflict style game. You need to be aware that, like, one path could be practically guaranteed to win. Maybe if you choose certain type of, of mechanism and that's proven to win every time. If you have a lot of conflict options in the game, then maybe it's easy enough for people to, you make it, if that is so easy to win with, you make it so easy to allow other players to stop people doing. So you can balance it as well in in various different ways. Um, It doesn't always have to be simply take resources away from that person. And I suppose, don't forget to, don't forget to balance the game 
over the course of the game. It's all well and good going, well, in round one, everyone has equal opportunity to get different things in round two and so on and so forth. What you don't want to end up with is like a Quidditch situation where the end game scoring is just worth so much more that it just makes the entire game up to that point redundant. You know, people play a really good game and one person sits there twiddling their thumbs and then accidentally catches the snitch and then bam, they've won the game for doing nothing. <laughs> I guess really someone, someone doesn't like Quidditch. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, why is it worth 150 points? It's just... <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd also worry about uh, balancing from a developer's point of view of uh, how you change your game when you learn about the balance of your game. So obviously playtesting and modeling, it, you'll discover elements of your game <clears throat> quite a lot. And you want to make sure that you can pinpoint the kind of exciting and uh, interesting parts of your game whether they're the player conflict or there's a specific path throughout the game you want to focus on, whatever you have seen that people really enjoy about your game, you want to keep that and you want to improve it as you do balancing. So just be aware of that, that you don't want to just blanket, make everything the same and then take away the personality of a certain part of your game. You want to kind of, you know, enhance it and make it better. And you also want to yeah, get rid of anything that's not helping that. So as much as you want to, you want to keep the really good bits you know, take liberties to remove anything that's not helping you balance your game. Some component that's only in there and it's not fun and it's just adding like some sort of balancing element. Like try and try and keep your mechanics down to only what's needed to rather than overcomplicate things. So I think in, in a lot of the answers, we've talked about different paths to, to victory in different games. But maybe we should go through a specific example on how a path can help developer discover an imbalance. Yeah, sure. Um, as an example, a lot of games have player conflict as a path to victory. So you'll have games like Risk, where that's kind of the main scope of the game. You're trying to take over the world and trying to cause conflict uh, everywhere you go. And then there's other games where like Ticket to Ride, where it's only a secondary aspect. You act like you could build a train and you accidentally take over someone else's train line that they were trying to get to and they have to go around you. As a developer, you want to manage that expectation of um, the specific path. So when it comes to player conflict, do you want player conflict in your game? So if you want someone, if you want to uh, advertise player conflict to your game, you want to make sure you want to make it appealing for the players. In Risk, the only way to win is true conflict. So there's no resource gathering other than true conflict. So you need to take that into consideration when you're when you're designing the path. Um, you need to realize that if you are kind of pay a tentative game, you might be able to keep any resources you have. But if you don't have a continent, that's an easy way to lose through that game. Um, so, you, so you need to consider how aggressive somebody needs to be. If somebody's too aggressive in risk, they overextend and then they're just going to lose. Uh, so, the, so the balance of that path is really important as the person goes through the game. Yeah, and it's important to, to not confuse conflict with interaction. You know, if you if you have a game where you don't want players necessarily fighting with each other, but each of them kind of playing their own game, you still want them to be able to play the game together. It, it can be hard where you've got where you're sitting there playing a game and there's essentially five of you around a table playing your own game and just seeing who wins at the end. You're not interacting with other players. You're you're not uh, trying to block them. You're not trying to get resources before them. Like you can balance a game so that. Like like in Ticket to Ride, as you were saying, where there is an element of blocking, it benefits you, it hinders someone else. But if you're playing Ticket to Ride, where it doesn't matter where you put your trains, that people can just go through you or around you, you know, what's the point? You're just playing your own game. 
in the same room as four other people who are playing their own game. Yeah, yeah. And if it's a secondary aspect, you can kind of balance it in that way. Don't make it super important, but also people want that conflict. People want that activity against each other. So as a developer, you also kind of want to look at the paths throughout the game as unique paths. So if you have like a game with kind of like a player conflict path, and then there's another person who's kind of going slow and steady, doesn't want to get involved in anything. Uh, maybe they're like, you know, in uh, Australia in risk and they just don't want to get involved, just going to stay there for the rest of the game. You want to be able to look at those paths as unique paths in your game and see if you can create like uh, items and create game elements that will kind of enhance that uniqueness and make it feel like everybody's playing a different character, almost like a different game themselves uh, when they play the game. Uh, And that will kind of help make it not so much generic, bring in this kind of uniqueness to each path. And it'll also help you balance the game when you look at the weaknesses of each path. Because, you know, if, if someone is, you know, being turtling up in Australia and one person's taking over Asia, you want to be able to see what the weaknesses of each strategy is and how you can take advantage of it. And that will that will be where you, you can generate the balance of the game. Yeah, and you want the person who maybe spends two rounds being careful in Australia to be able to change their strategy when they see that somebody's taking over Asia and be able to do something about that. So maybe that's like the, I think the extra unit cards in Risk or something like that. Maybe you just... Uh, throw in something that means there is still a chance if you've chose a strategy and it's not going to be the winning one for that game that you can switch paths or there's a few options to enhance the path that you're on so that you might still be able to win with it with the uh, whatever uh, strategy you've chosen yeah don't take these specific elements or items kind of in isolation they all kind of need to be taken in a broad scope i think playtesting is also very useful at this stage too because when it comes to modeling and maths um, it's easy when we come to very specific parts. When you look at a specific item, it's kind of easy to understand if this specific item is ba- imbalanced. But when it comes to the mixture of paths and people choosing different aspects of different parts of the game, that can kind of get uh, very difficult to model, almost impossible. And so this is where playtesting can really show some, off some strength. Try out your different paths, see how they all mix together as players continue to try and, and try new things what options they're given throughout the game, already kind of pushed towards certain paths. And then you can try and balance them out yourselves, uh, deciding which ones you want to advertise more, create more like options for, but also maybe it requires certain players to be a specific path before that path becomes more uh, likable. So yeah, those how how everything mixes together is very important. And as far as like, if you can, try and have people of similar skill levels play the game together. Because then if somebody gets stuck and can't win with a path, then it might prove that maybe you need to take elements out or maybe you need to add some enhancements to that strategy to in the game. Because if the player skill levels are, are equal and everyone picks a valid victory scenario, you want everyone to have as good a chance as anyone. You want to make sure that the end game scoring is close for players with similar skills. You will want the playtesting to... For, for some time, for some of the playtesting, you may need to tell people to play the game a specific type of way, like one person focuses on gathering a load of resources throughout the first couple of rounds and then makes a move, or other players who only go for kind of conflict and other players who play the long game go for end game scoring, different players who play the kind of short farming game where they earn little bits of points the whole way along, just so that you know you're trying out all the different paths, routes to victory that, you know, there isn't always going to be one that definitely wins. But there's a few good books, there's a few good websites on it that you can uh, you can check out. I think we mentioned them in our in our other playtesting podcast. 
but you can you can find different types of strategies and different types of gameplay to to look out for. Yeah, and playtesting helps with uh, everything from the round numbers to the amount of players because you won't be able to figure this stuff out through maths and modeling because you know different strategies they have this kind of build up rate. Some are kind of slow and steady where you just get the same amount each round. Some are just kind of, you're slowly building up this engine. How all well these engines kind of interact with each other, you know, it depends on the amount of players, it depends on the amount of time. So uh, yeah, those are all things will be revealed to you when you do the playtesting. Okay, so how does fun come into play when you're considering balance? <laughs> <laughs> Not the answer I hoped yeah. for. <laughs> yeah, so when you think about like some of the bigger, say like Ticket to Ride, go back to an example in Ticket to Ride where, you know, you've played the game the whole way through and one person is like 50 points ahead and they're really smug and chuffed with themselves and they think this is it, I've won. And then the game ends and all of a sudden you break out all your root cards and your end game scoring all of a sudden just obliterates them and they end up and you end up kind of 15 points ahead to win the game. That feels really good because you've chosen a different path to them and you've ended up with 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 a better victory and they're still going oh that was great it was so close because they thought they were winning for the whole thing and then lost it at the end so you have to remember that balancing the different routes you should ideally have players finishing on similar scores because a close game always feels more enjoyable than you know a game where one person is clearly winning from the second round and nothing changes for the next five rounds and you're just sitting there kind of watching them already winning that uh, it kind of takes away from from the experience of a game for me anyway I find yeah because uh, but those different paths at least are very balanced mm-hmm. and you, you can balance those uh, different ones of choosing routes in Ticket to Ride versus trying to get the longest train building a whole lot of different connection points and you'd think Ticket to Ride would be quite an easy game to balance because actually all the players have roughly the same idea you're building trains on some routes and that's it but when you think about even a game as simple as that, you're thinking about players who take short routes, a lot of short routes, players who take who just focus on one really long route across the board where they get a lot of points for the long route and they get a lot of points for the longest train. Things like that can can have a, a even though they're only variations on the purpose of the game, they're what you need to look at as the different paths to victory. Now, you can force players into taking those paths based on the like random cards in the deck. So maybe a player who starts the game only gets three long cards. So then they're forced into doing the longest route across the board, no matter what way the, the uh, game plays. And uh, if they get loads of cards with short routes, then they're going to have to go for the short route game. But for a lot of the, the, the times, you get a mix of both because the cards are fairly well shuffled and the routes are fairly diverse. So you're giving the players an option of which of those types of games they want. And then there's the players who like when they see a load of people building in around one of the towns, will just build around that town as well so that they block off routes to that town. They are only small variations on the overall system, but they're they're the fun bits that make it different. If, if Ticket to Ride didn't have different Lent routes or closed off paths, then there really wouldn't be anything to Ticket to Ride. It would be a pretty boring game all the same. So I think that the fun bit has to come in with the interaction and what players can and can't do. Yeah, yeah. The, the fun parts of Ticket to Ride, I find, are always those interesting choices you have to make, especially when it comes to the routes. But yeah, and, and that kind of replayability of the game, of knowing, yeah, it is kind of randomness when you get those routes, but 
because it's kind of balanced and you do get options later on to choose more routes, you can have less routes, you know, you don't have to go for that, that kind of different uh, path. Um, that, that's where the fun comes from. And, it, and a trick is when you're coming to balancing this kind of stuff is to keep that fun and to kind of enhance it and to make it a big part of your game. To kind of look at it and say, all right, well, this is obviously a separate section. Let's work on these routes. Let's kind of uh, figure out why they're imbalanced. And then so you can also then push this to the limit and have like a route that's just a crazy route, gives you a whole bunch of points and put it in and say, this card is not balanced. But like anybody goes for it is absolutely insane. Yeah. Um, but you can do it anyway because you never know you might get it. <laughs> and so One of those high risk, <laughs> high reward routes that so easily blocked. But if you pull it off, man, it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. And that, that adds a whole bunch of replayability because even if you're not that kind of player who take that risk, because you've played it loads and loads of times, you know the value of these numbers. You know that value is worth a lot. And you know you could, you could win from it even if you don't get a great like uh, head start or you don't work out everything. If you get this route, you're going to have a great time. And so um, that can really change your approach to the game. Um, and that adds a whole bunch of excitement and fun. That's one of my favorite things to do when everyone is like 25 points ahead of you and they're looking back at you with pity, like, oh, he's not even trying. And then, bam, 50 <laughs> points. <laughs> See you later, guys. <laughs> and I think that that's like a key bit of balance. Balance shouldn't make all of the strategies the same. It should be a, like having a high risk, high reward thing. That might mean that that person is 25 points behind for the whole game. But if they do pull it off, they'll be so far ahead that they'll have a really good sense of achievement. But there's a good chance that somebody could just accidentally block them or on purpose block them and ruin the whole thing. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it adds to the, it. That definitely adds to the fun of the game. And also with the, the people like halfway through Ticket to Ride, you could realize you're losing. It feels like you're not going to win. Whereas the routes, being able to choose routes mid-game is a great way of, of a catch-up mechanism. Because you don't never really know if you're losing in Ticket to Ride just because of this whole routes thing. But if you have a fairly good idea and you're like, I, I got to take this risk, that's, you know, pick up a whole new, new routes, you might get lucky. And that's a, that's a pretty good catch-up mechanism for getting people back into it and getting people enjoying and having fun in the game. And keeping them engaged, yeah. definitely. That's a, a kind of, we touched on it a bit before as well about, you know, a brand new player in the game versus someone who's played the game 15 or 20 times, you don't want the brand new player to feel like they're completely outmatched because they can't do anything to keep up with this experienced player. I kind of equate it to like the, the likes of Street Fighter games where, you know, you have the guys who's, who've played like days and days of it and they can do all these fancy combos and you come in with your first time playing the game and you just keep mashing the punch button and you're winning because you just keep mashing the punch button. The person can't use their combos. You want to be able to come into a board game, even if you're brand new, and still have a chance of keeping up or winning, whether it's through luck or, you know, blocking someone or going after a different route. You want you want to always be able to compete. Because if you're if you're out of it from the word go because the other person has played a lot more, you're not going to enjoy it. You're probably not going to want to pick it up and play it again. So a good balance there between advanced and beginner players is a good one to have. No one wants to play Street Fighter with me. (laughs) (laughs) Button bash. (laughs) So is there anything developers should look out for when they're trying to balance a path in a game? Yeah, so when you are uh, looking at these paths, uh, especially like with routes and Ticket to Ride and then making your longest, uh, you know, actual route, 
to get those points. Uh, you might think that the best approach is always the mixture of the paths and finding the sweet spot in there so that players can find their uh, winning strategy. And it could be difficult for you as a developer to figure out how do I balance these different paths so that they're not all overly powerful. And a good way of looking at this is to focus on the weaknesses of each path and uh, kind of bring those weaknesses out as uh, the problem. In Tick the Rise, the weakness of the roots is that if you do pick up more roots, you're forced to pick, pick at least one of the tree. And that can, you know, it might not be a route you want to take and then you lose points because of it. And so if you focus on the weaknesses of the pat and bring those to light and then bring in game elements related to that or maybe new mechanics, new rules, you can help balance these kind of unique ways of playing your game, which some developers can struggle with. One thing you can do as well is have each team be a different faction where they're getting different points and different benefits by going different routes on the board. It doesn't tie them into it, but you know, if you focus on going, say, an agricultural route or you focus on going a warmongering route, you might be more inclined to get more points. So if you're looking to kind of diversify the game and make people play all the different pathways and balance the paths against each other, you know, you can give them those starting factions or advantages, but just make sure that it's it's obvious to all the players what they're doing or what advantages other players have. Like, I, I, I don't know about you guys, I found Root quite confusing like that. The first time you play it, especially, you don't know what the other players' objectives and targets and advantages are. And even reading the rule book doesn't necessarily help. So you're playing your game thinking you're going quite well and all of a sudden someone goes, oh, I've won. And I'm like, what? what? How? What? <laughs> and you didn't even know to look out for them. Yeah. Because you were yeah. just like, so... You didn't realize what their end game conditions were, so it doesn't it doesn't appear very easily when you're. I found that very that very frustrating because the interaction in the game was so limited because everyone was so obsessed with figuring out their own rules that they didn't have time to like compete to stop other players or take was it towns or yeah whatever they were. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't know when you should be hindering people or when they were very, very close to winning. So it kind of just ended abruptly like yeah. without people being prepared. Yeah, this is this is where team comes into balance. But, you know, balance touches on a lot of different aspects of board games, but team is a good one because uh, stereotypes are pretty prevalent in the board games. And uh, you'll want to ensure that at least some parts of the stereotypes apply to your game. So, you know, when you're talking about agricultural choice versus the warmongering choice, like no one who's ever played a, that board game will still know that whoever picks the warmongering path is painting a giant red target on them because warmongers, they just, people don't want to, them to get attacked. And so they're just going to get a lot of player focus from other people. And anytime anybody can hurt the warmongering people, they will because potentially the warmongering people have hurt them. And so you want to use these stereotypes to your advantage. And make sure that if you if there is one that has a lot of player conflict mechanics and requires a lot of interaction with players, make that a warmongering faction so that when players are starting the game for the first time and they don't understand your rules, that they pick the warmongering clan if that's the kind of aspect of the game they want to play. So an example of one where you pick a path early on in the game is Lord's Waterdeep. When you get your Lord in Lord's Waterdeep, he can have various different extra points that he gets for different things. And this tends to give you like... Uh, some incentive to go along a particular path. So even though there's loads of paths in the game, when you get used to the game, you might think, well, if my Lord is obsessed with piety and gets loads of extra points for piety, then that they're the sort of quest that you're going to focus on. And you're going to focus on getting like little clerics 
So it kind of gives you an idea of where, what resources and things you want. But at the same time, you can easily win in a game that's not too extreme from any of the paths. If, if no piety quests come up, you can still win without using any piety quests. So I guess that kind of leaves a little bit of an open-ended kind of option on the path. You can follow the path that's given to you as your Lord, or you can just do your own thing. But all of them should have, relatively speaking, in, like if you, relatively speaking, an easy enough way to win. And it can be tricky for new players as well. Because when they see something like skullduggery and piety, that, that's not really words that I'd be familiar with. So <laughs> it's tough to... You're not, yeah. You don't use skullduggery in your day-to-day? Not no, really, no. Yeah. That, that rapscallion, <laughs> he had so much skullduggery. <laughs> Doesn't come up as much Pockets as... Pockets full of skullduggery. <laughs> <laughs> and that can be tricky for new players. Like, obviously, there's a lot of colours and uh, a lot of artwork that can help. So when you see a skullduggery um, quest come up, and you can see that it does some bad stuff to other players. You start to go... Oh, I'm a bad person. <laughs> um, I just liked that it had a lot of black cubes on it. <laughs> but it can be tricky. It can be tricky. When you're when you're do- another thing to consider as well is when you're doing playtesting, don't be afraid to remove elements just because they you're finding them unbalanced and you can't balance them. Like if you have a particular route of gathering certain resources that gets you a certain action and it's either too powerful or too weak and nothing's happening, you can spend days and days and weeks and weeks trying to balance this and get it to fit and get it to work. But if you just can't, take it out of the game. It'll make life simpler for you, but it also gives you an option to put in a different element that might work a bit more in your favor, that might be a bit more balanced, that might be easy. So don't tie yourself in knots trying to balance everything in the game. Sometimes getting a good balance can be about taking some stuff out or adding new stuff in that you hadn't considered before. Yeah, it's, it's really tough, especially when people enjoy an aspect of the game and then you have to take it out because of balance. Uh, just remember, because, you know, keep a, we have versioning systems for our board games, so we can always revisit topics that we enjoyed as developers and also that people enjoyed when they play tested it. So, you know, you never know in the future, you might end up bringing this aspect in after the balancing has occurred and you know there's some space afterwards to do it. Uh, Because balancing takes a long time. I find uh, that breaking the rules of balance is also a great way to learn about your game. So if you know that a certain element of your game, it will just ruin the whole aspect of it, such as giving someone something very high value at the very start of the game. So like in Lords of Waterdeep, you give people this kind of crazy item uh, or quest that uh, very early game that could ruin it. Try to do it in your game. See what happens. And that could lead to new ideas. It could lead to new balancing opportunities. It could lead to new paths to uh, exploit or look into. And so all this is about just trying to really mentally understand your game and then also have like a good foundation um, of what balance means in your game. And throwing in a component like that has another uh, aspect too. If you find that your game has gotten too balanced, which can happen, and there's no like there's no excitement or there's no curiosity for trying new things because one way is guaranteed to win. You're going to find that people lose interest. So throwing in a new mechanic or throwing in something that you know is just a bit crazy might remind people of what they really like about a game. And it might cause you to figure out the pieces that are really important to keep as opposed to the pieces where you thought this was a really clever mechanic. So you definitely want to keep it in the game. But actually, all it's doing is making the game more complicated and it's not making it more fun to win. So you still have to come back to the whole playability of the game. Just because an element is balanced 
doesn't mean it should stay. And just because an element isn't balanced doesn't mean it should go. Yeah, yeah. And as I said before, the last thing you want is five people sitting there playing separate, equally perfect balanced games together where, you know, you're all just going to go, yes, I've got 97 points. Oh, I have 97 points. Yeah, me too. Uh, five of us perfectly tied and at no point did we talk or interact. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite examples is Stone Age Anniversary. They came out with that game and, and one of the elements they added in was the ability to kill like uh, wolves and and uh, oh, yeah. t- uh, different creatures that came out and you'd have to work together to do it. And Stone Age doesn't really have a whole lot of that. Con- uh, it's, it's a different way of dealing with the player conflict. Yeah. Usually it's to do with getting resources and getting actions on the board. It's stealing babies. It, it was unique. <laughs> <laughs> it was a unique way of doing it. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I added a whole bunch of new elements to the game. That was just very fun. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that was a game where player interaction was quite low. Like, it was quite simple. The player interaction was just taking resources. But adding in something new to bring people together or to, to add a bit more of point stealing for people who played it, especially in an anniversary edition where people have been playing it for years and they have now, the replayability is really <laughs> running out. <laughs> it's good to add in something just a little bit out there. Yeah. One final big thing to always, always look out for is the one path that will always lead you to victory. Like if you focus on one resource or you focus on one path in a game and it always has you 20 points ahead by the end of the game, people are going to figure that out. People are going to just play for that route. And sure, it might add a bit of fun, a bit of conflict as everyone tries to get the same thing. But then there's a lot more of your game that's not being included and people will get bored if that's the only option they can take. So it's always good to make sure that having one strong strategy is great if it's, you know, high risk where you're not definitely going to get it. But if you have a high risk strategy that may pay off, but is difficult to get to, it can be fun to keep it in the game. But one that's always accessible to all players and always wins is going to get boring and people aren't going to want to play the game if, you know, just that's the route to win. Oh, I didn't get to go on it. Game over. Yeah, because as a developer, uh, you're trying to make a game that you uh, have a vision for. And so um, if you have lots of different paths and you're starting to balancing them all out and you realize that there's this slow and steady path that kind of wins every time, you could consider like heavily uh, imbalancing that slow and steady pace so that it's not even worth it, really. It's only when people are in dire straits do they ever go for it because they've gone down their very risky path and they realize that they can't actually make any more actions. They have no gold, they have no resources, they can't actually do anything. Maybe they fall back to the slow and steady just to get them back on their feet. Um, and so, yeah, you have, to, you have to consider what kind of game you actually want to make because you can, true balance, you can force players to do the path that is more unique, more interesting rather than picking something that's kind of a little bit more standard. Well, that's pretty much wraps us up for balancing a board game. If you enjoyed it, share it. We've been Decking Awesome Games. Thank you for listening. See ya. Cheers. Cheers.